Mini 2, Mini Harder. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Sega commits to Retro Part 2. There are stranger things than a customized workbench. And the ultimate scam. All these stories and a whole lot more coming up on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, chaps. For those of you in the UK, I hope you enjoyed the four-day weekend that we had with the uh, extra days off for the Jubilee. Uh, did you follow it, Dave? Um, I took a day off work quite happily. Um, and I, um, <laughs> I, I built a Windows XP machine rather than watching the Jubilee. Very nice. And how about you, Chris, as a as a uh, Australian <laughs> immigrant from these shores originally? Uh, other than a couple of photos off Facebook, I haven't seen a thing on it, partially because I haven't been watching much TV, so it's probably my own fault, but seriously haven't seen much coverage at all, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, there we go. Wonderful. And likewise here. So we'll quickly move on to the next topic. Um, <laughs> I've been chatting this week to uh, Doug over at the 10 Minute Amiga Retrocast. I'm sure you guys know of his channel. And it's that time again where he's holding his retro art contest, his Amiga art contest, which is a really nice thing. He started it in 2019. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to the announcement and all the details you need. If you're creative and you want to submit um, a photo, an animation, anything artistic, really, you know, get those creative juices flowing and take part in this competition. And um, I really like this idea because uh, A, Doug is, um, well, he's a one-man army in trying to prove to everyone that the Amiga is more than just a games machine, which of course it is, but, what? you know, sorry, Chris is looking confused there. What? What are the joysticks <laughs> for then? <laughs> and also, um, I think when you try to do anything with retro machines, whether it's coding, whether it's art, anything at all whatsoever, it's really difficult to sit down and, and, and focus unless you've got a purpose. And to be given a purpose like a competition, it really does motivate you and um, give you an end goal. So it's great that people like Doug are running competitions like this. So I would uh, encourage people to get behind it and support it and indeed take part if you have mm. some or even little skill. You don't need a lot of skill to take part. Just um, get involved. So um, that's excited me this week. How about you, Chris? Nice. Well, I, I have to add there, I have, in fact, entered Doug's art competition in the past just to prove how little skill I actually have in D-Paint. <laughs> but it was good fun. Like you say, it gives you focus, and I just use the opportunity to recreate an image I remember drawing in D-Paint back in the day. So I had fun, even though it was a terrible image. Um, me, I actually had a mate-up yesterday that I've been wanting to catch up with for a long time showing in my retro collection and we ended up sitting down and playing gold night i i just think there's a game for everyone and we're sort of finding that common ground because obviously we've got different paths in terms of gaming as soon as he saw the n64 it was gold night he did choose odd job and yes he is still a friend even though he chose odd job mm -hmm. um but i'd given him what i thought was the good controller so it's one of those brand new recreation controllers and i uh, used the dodgy original one <laughs> i thrashed him every round <laughs> and then afterwards i realized it's because actually the brand new controller, the um, it's almost digital. It's almost all or nothing. When you try and control with the right. thumbstick, it's it just flies from one side of the screen to the other once it actually connects. So not the best controller, I have to say. So I'll have to get some reconditioned ones, I think. But yeah, good fun. Good fun. Dave? So it turns out that Sega watched episode 77 of This Week in Retro. <laughs> and this isn't a story we've picked this week uh, to go into great detail, but on episode 77, we asked for Sega to do a nice Warhammer 40k FPS, and Sega watched the episode and agreed, and are now producing a game called Bolt Gun, which looks to be based in the Unreal Engine. Um, at least it looks like it to me, but it looks very much like a Doom or Duke-style FPS. It's only a teaser, and there's only just a few seconds of gameplay, um, and there's, there's really not much to say yet, but clearly this podcast is in control of the gaming industry. <laughs> clearly, clearly. Yeah, this was off the back of uh, Sega announcing that they were going to fully commit back to retro and they were going to dive into old IPs and things like that, and uh, I think we made the suggestion that, that Warhammer... Um, mm -hmm. and uh, Space Hulk that's been a game yeah. in the past and things like that should be resurrected. So there you go. clearly they, in the space of two weeks, they've knocked that up off the back of our podcast and, uh, <laughs> you know, give it another two weeks. They'll probably have finished it. 
uh, they'll be hanging on to our every word today to hear if they need to change anything. So with that in mind, let's go straight into our first story, shall we? And our first story does continue the Sega theme today. A lot of Sega news lately. Following that recent story about Sega making a fresh commitment to retro, we've got another bit of news to discuss. The announcement of a new mini console from the company. We're back into mini territory again. It has been zero days since we last discussed mini consoles. Um, there were rumors that an announcement was imminent and uh, it was causing a lot of excitement on social media. I saw a lot of buzz everywhere about this. Lots of people saying it's going to be the Dreamcast mini at last. Um, some people hoping for the Saturn mini. But no, unfortunately, neither of those. What we've got from Sega is the Sega Mega Drive 2 mini. Can I get a woo? Bit of excitement, guys. Sega. <laughs> I know your memory isn't failing you. We had seen a Sega Mega Drive Mini in 2019. And three years later, here we are getting the Mega Drive 2. With those, those of you with long memories, just to put this in some context, the original Mega Drive came out in 1988 in Japan, and the Mega Drive 2 came five years later. So they haven't hung on five years, just the three years from the one and the two in the Mini here. Now, the full-fat Mega Drive 2 was, of course, compatible with the original Mega Drive. It was a cost-reduced model. And I have to say, for me, the original Mega Drive has always been the more desirable model for me, mostly just because of its looks. I love the way it looked. Whether it's the release we got or the Japanese version, which looks slightly different, I just think it's a gorgeous-looking console, especially when you pair it up with the Mega CD 1 which is the one that sits underneath it. When you come onto the 2, you have the Mega CD that sits side-by-side. To me, it looks cost-reduced. I don't know. Maybe it's just down to personal taste. So the Mega Drive Mini 2 isn't yet confirmed for a Western release, so we don't know if we're going to get it over here. What we do know is that it will have 50 games included, spanning both cartridge and CD releases, and it's going to cost roughly £60. So guys, it's mini time again. What do you make of this from Sega? So this is my first mini story on This Week in Retro, so... If I manage to do a joystick story, I've completed my initiation. <laughs> um, I'm not a console person. I've never owned a console. The first console I owned was two years ago when I bought a GX4000. Um, so I don't know a great deal about them, but to me, that just looks like a Mega Drive. So that's that's exactly what it looks like. It does the job there. Um, the emulator and you get two controllers and a whole load of games for 60 quid seems like a really low amount of money. It's an impulse purchase, so it's the kind of thing you'll see it on Amazon and go, oh, I'll stick that in my box, or you'll buy it for someone for a present, so it's a, it's a great price. Um, and personally, as far as minis are concerned, I, I don't like the comparison between these kinds of things and emulations with a Pi, etc. I know people say, well, you can do all that with a Pi, or you can do all that, you don't need to buy it. I, I don't agree with that at all. If you were a console fan back in the day rather than a computer fan, you were probably illiterate. So the idea of someone coming out <laughs> and oh. managing to get an emulator, I, I, that's not a serious point. No, but if, if you were a console fan back in the day, there's no, there's no, there, there's nothing there to say that you, you would be able to, to research and find out what an emulator is, get it, find the ROMs, put it all together. Whereas you can just buy this, plug it in and play. And to me, that looks ideal. Well, I feel like I need to issue an apology on behalf of Dave at this point. Sorry, all console owners. Um, Don't yeah. worry, they won't write in. They can't. <laughs> just digging deeper. He's just no, digging a deeper true. hole. No, that's true, though. They don't have keyboards, so how are they going to do it? <laughs> Crayons. <laughs> Let's move on swiftly. Um, yeah, £60 you describe as an impulse purchase. And I agree with you, but at what point does that momentum stop when you've bought the Mega Drive Mini 1, the Mega Drive Mini 2. What, you know, when does the impulse stop? When do all the £60 add up and you go, actually, I'm spending a bit too much on this. I should just get a pie and have everything in one place. I don't know, but I, I agree with you. It's like the same argument we had about the Amiga Mini. Yeah, you could just set up an Amiga Mini on a pie, but it's lovely to have that nicely finished case and that packaging yeah. and the mouse mm. and the, well, not so much the joypad that came with that, but, you know, the, the whole experience is a nice thing and I think it's well worth the money. Um, is it a good start to Sega's recent promise to embrace its heritage and retro as it said it would over the next five years? That's another question, I think. Um, I think we will see the Saturn and the Dreamcast minis come eventually, and I, and I think it will be all part and parcel of this 
completionist uh, attitude of having to buy all of the minis to get the collection to complete the set to have them all lined up on your shelf but i think we'll probably see my guess and my money would be on a master system mini next mm. i think that's just the the quick win the easy option if you can do a mega drive mini surely they can very easily and quickly knock out a master system mini before they get onto the complexities of the saturn and the extra power needed for the dreamcast and all of that so um i wouldn't be surprised if we see that next uh but yeah the mega drive mini 2 will certainly be a good test of sega mini owner loyalty if a large portion of those who bought the first Mega Drive Mini also buy the second, then Sega are just going to go all guns blazing. They're not going to look back. They're going to say, right, here is um, a group of people that we can absolutely rinse because we've proven they've bought effectively bought the same thing twice. They're going to buy it three, four, five times. So let's just keep ringing that out. Is that fair to say, Chris? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, mean, I love the whole Mini idea, uh, and I haven't got many of them. In fact, I've only got the a500 mini to be honest um but something like the mega drive i have some nostalgia towards it because one of my friends had one but i never had one so i'm not going to go out and buy a real mega drive and start collecting games for it. it just doesn't make any sense for me and this is where minis come in and they just do that job perfectly and this price is a fantastic price i'd certainly be tempted to pick one up um I miss the original Mega Drive Mini, and I do prefer the aesthetics of the original Mega Drive, so I'm, I'm a bit gutted. Because even these Minis, they they kind of almost instantly become collectible. They get hoarded by a few people, and then they get resold at higher than the original value once the original shipment has dried up. Um, the one I'm really gutted about that I didn't pick up was the SNES, because I did have a SNES back in the day. But again, I'm really not tempted to pick up a uh, um, an actual one and start collecting games i'd rather just have the mini because the mini actually has most of the games i would want anyway so yeah that's yeah i used a mini in an internet cafe some years back and it was it was great pick up and play experience um, yeah. perfect for that kind of setting an internet cafe just your lounge when friends come over that's what these minis are all about just pick yeah. up and play with none of this oh there's a update that you need to install or you know yeah some, something's changed it's, it's just pick up and play and reliable and i love that about them yeah i think they should put a thing in i've just thought of this whereby every now and again it will fail to load the game and you have to pull out a pretend cartridge and blow in the slot and then put it back and then it will magically <laughs> load that would be epic <laughs> yeah um in slightly unrelated mega drive news this week i actually scored a, a real in the wild mega drive game cartridge it was only sonic the hedgehog nothing rare or too exciting but there it was a sonic the hedgehog game in its box on the shelf in a charity shop this week oh i mean i i haven't seen a mega drive or any any cartridge game for that matter for i don't know 15 20 years in a charity shop so yeah. i had to buy it it was eight pound 50 which I think it's cheaper if I went to the retro game shop in Swindon and bought that. But, but you know, you can pick up Sonic for a fiver, surely. But just just to say I'd done it, just to reset the clock and say the last time I bought a cartridge game in the wild was 2022. I thought that was £8.50 well spent. So there you go. I picked that up. I, I, who knows when I'll next see uh, a cartridge game in the wild. But speaking of games, with this Mega Drive Mini 2, it, it, it's promising 50 games. Obviously, these games are um, catered to the Japanese audience where it's being launched. So if we do get a Western launch, they may well change. And we haven't got the full list of games, but they do include, apparently, Bonanza Brothers, Fantasy Zone, uh, Mansion of Hidden Souls. I'm not familiar with that one. Has anyone played that one? Mansion of Hidden Souls? No. no. Shining Force CD. So we've got some CD games represented. Shining in the Darkness, Slip Heed, Sonic CD. That's a great addition. Thunder Force 4 and Virtua Racing, which would have contained that extra chip magic to um, eke out the 3D in it. So, hmm. yeah, um, that's all we know so far. There'll be, you know, many, many more games. How many games could you get for 60 quid for the Mega Drive? I mean, you could probably yeah. get 15 or 20 average, very common games, you know, 8 to 10 less average you know desirable games i don't know what do you think dave yeah i i think um i think it's reasonable value i mean the the drip the drip feeding out the the games on it they'll they'll release a few names every so often to keep yeah. interest going but by the time uh, 50 classic games for the mega drive are there i mean if you write a list of the best mega drive games do you get to 50 that's true that's true yeah um so you're looking at let's, let's put this in some perspective though 
50 games for 60 pounds, one pound 20 per game. I mean, yeah. this is this is pr- lower than the Codemasters and the Mastertronic prices of mm. cassette games in the 80s. That's pretty damn good value for money, yeah. I think. So I don't think there can be too many complaints. And I think that is the bottom yeah. line. 50 games for 60 pounds, one pound 20 a game. It's hard to complain. Bargain. Isn't that the cost of what a modern game is now, about 60 quid? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. If, you, if you're yeah. going, you know, triple a game in this day and age for sure um so yeah i think it represents pretty good value for money and in the presentation they're showing little add-ons like the mega cd unit to sit next to it and the you know the i think there was a virtual racing cartridge that sat in t- on the top of it no doubt there'll be a 32x thing to you know it, it's it's that blurring the lines between model collecting and retro gaming and people like that and I'm not going to complain for £60. I'm fine with that. So um, until the next mini is announced, and let's place our bets just before we end this story. For me, it's the Master System. What do you think? The next one that will be announced. The next one that by will be announced. By C or by anyone? By... Let's go by anyone then. Go by anyone. No. I think there'll be another SNES. Another SNES? Oh, I hope there'll be another SNES. I really do. Um, I think there'll be a, a, a mini Jaguar just to really annoy me because I've just shelled out for a, a real one. <laughs> <laughs> well, watch this space. I'm sure it'll only be a matter of weeks before we're talking about them again. Johnny is a mini Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Right. I want you to think back to your days with your, well, for you, Neil, your Amiga and Dave, your whatever that machine was you had the st or whatever it was um and or or if you if you like your first version of windows did you customize the look and feel of the operating system as in you know the colors the background the icons even just once did you have a play certainly did it in windows 3 and onwards changed the sounds um i'm sorry dave i can't do that uh, from uh, Space <laughs> nice. Odyssey. Uh, I don't remember doing it in the ST, but I do remember adding little programs. I think it was a, a rat trap it was caused to stop the menus opening by accident. So I did add a, a little bit, but yeah. Neil? Yeah, I mean, um, Windows in particular, my method was always to just set the desktop to black, nothing but black. I had a super organized start menu with everything filed within its subfolders. Active desktop always had to be off. And I was laughing recently because a visitor who came to the cave and used the Windows 98 machine, for some reason, turned on active desktop. <laughs> I was like, did you show them out? <laughs> I don't know why they did that. I think they were just trolling me. Mm. I kept the desktop clean and clear and I just everything was super, super organized. And that was from the point of view of productivity, knowing where to find stuff and minimizing the amount of memory that was actually used by crap so that i had it available for programs yeah well why are we talking about this chris well i mean i I, for one i i certainly did tinker even back in the days of the amiga just because you could i I didn't always save it unless it was a my copy of workbench obviously but I, i i tended to go towards the the black background with white um, borders and white text and a spattering of red because red on black just looks angry and awesome um and so yeah definitely did that back in the day the reason i'm bringing this up to answer your question is because well the internet kind of exploded recently actually that's not true it was just sort of a sort of mild eruption on a couple of facebook groups but the reason was uh there is an amiga 1000 in stranger things season four now obviously we've talked about machines in tv series and movies and all that kind of stuff previously several times so you know we don't need to hark on about it too much but basically just to set the scene season four of stranger things is set in 1986 and there's a teenage hacker called Susie, played by gabriella grace pizzolo and she uses her amiga 1000 to assist the main characters in their quest no spoilers here other than the fact that there's an amiga 1000 and so the a1000 it shows up as early as episode one in fact and it's but it, it, it's sort of really key scene is in episode five where Susie is called upon to dial into a government computer to reveal the location of a secret base okay so that's a slight spoiler sorry about that um but <laughs> you know what it's like you know the know-it-alls on the internet were very quick to point out what was wrong with the scene but i really want to take this opportunity to celebrate what they got right okay so first of all the show's set in 1986. So they haven't gone with an Amiga 500, which is the more recognizable. They've gone with the A1000, which was released in 1985. So the machine is right for the period. And they're actually showing Workbench on the screen. 
albeit it's clearly a bit customized. It's green on black, hence my question. The icon actually says copy of workbench. So they've even <laughs> a shout a shout back to the fact that you were meant to make a copy of Workbench rather than the actual disc. And um, there is a slight error there, though, because it's Workbench 1.3, um, and that wasn't out until 1988. But anyway, moving on. Oh, shocking. Yep. I know, it's I'm terrible, outraged. isn't it? I'm never watching this show again. <laughs> <Ruined>. Stranger <laughs> Things sucks. Um, so the monitor, it's got the right monitor. They haven't just paired it with some random monitor. It's an uh, it's a eight, uh, 1080. It's got the tank mouse may not actually be plugged in but again we'll forgive it that they've got the right mouse it's not on a mouse pad anyway um and it's actually the correct uh keyboard it's a amiga 1000 keyboard which is fantastic very distinct keyboard because of the positioning of the arrow keys on on the amiga 1000 um look i just love the fact that it's there i love the fact that not only is it there but it's displaying workbench and not some made up bsos 6.9 <laughs> with big you know red access denied boxes flashing all over the screen which is what they usually do um so neil i don't know i i'm, I'm making an assumption here are, are you not into stranger things i'm i'm I'm, th- I'm guessing that you're not the kind this isn't the kind of show that you'd be into um <laughs> <laughs> why are we making this it. assumption why why Let's i don't know i just <laughs> i just assumed it wouldn't be your thing maybe because it sort of leans towards the horror kind of genre are you into it yes i've watched it from the start i love oh, this okay. show <laughs> cool we've you got more to talk neil? about than i thought yeah I what kind of judgment is this on you neil <laughs> i know i know shocking invite him onto the show to be a co-host oh, and that's terrible isn't it gets brave okay. starts slating me honestly <laughs> All right, so sledging, we can... that's what they call in the cricket, isn't it? He's sledging me. <laughs> I just assumed that you weren't into the show. But anyway, so yeah, feel free to give me a short thought on the show. But also, did you customise Workbench was the main question I have for you, Neil. Well, you have to remember this conversation we had some time back when you were first on the show, which is I never remember anything about the shows I watch. The names of the characters. Yes. I always get told off by Lily for calling 11-7. And get... <laughs> just, just oh, is it 11? so um, yeah but i'm into the show i love the aesthetic of it i love i just love everything about it and although series four is really going hard on the horror it's Mm. it's i'm fine i think it's a lot more graphic than the previous series or it just gets graphic sooner and hits you hard from the start so yeah but i try not to give any spoilers but yes i am enjoying it um workbench um just coming back to customization because i spoke about customizing windows but on workbench i didn't really customize it to be honest, because 90% of what I did on an Amiga just went straight into the program. You you didn't always see Workbench. Um, I had a pretty stock Amiga, so I was always loading Workbench off of the disk, which was invariably right protected. So any changes I made weren't going to be written back to disk. And um, again, like when I when I mentioned on the uh, on the Windows PC, it was all about memory. It was all about protecting that precious memory and not using up too much memory. Um, because you wanted it for the program or on the Amiga, you wanted it for that really cool thing, which was the RAM disk. So you could shove programs in, into the RAM disk and make them run really quickly. I always enjoyed that. I thought that was really futuristic for some reason. Um, I do remember using an icon editor on Workbench to draw mm. icons pixel by pixel. Did you ever use that? And it would, yeah. Um, I think it would have the screen, wouldn't it? And you'd have a zoomed view. That's right. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you could, I don't know if I'm confusing that with Deluxe Paint or if that was it. You, it would zoom no, in and it you was could it. click yeah. pixel by pixel. And that's probably the point I realized I would never be a pixel artist because every <laughs> time I tried to draw an icon, it just looked terrible. You know, you draw it, you go, well, that looks yeah. good. And then you'd zoom back out and see it on your workbench and it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, no, so, I uh, that. Yeah, I, I tried, but uh, yeah, I gave up on that pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah you could you could um customize the icons you could also customize the mouse pointer i remember doing that and trying to make it look oh, like yeah. a stealth fighter and then but then see again previous conversations my need my um you know i don't know what it is but my my wish to have everything standard as well so yes i would tinker and then i would instantly want to set it back to default so if you're sort of overwritten i think you could just reset preferences or something on the on on workbench but yeah changing the mouse pointer thought it looked awesome and then we changed it straight back after all those hours of work um but anyway i mean the workbench it's it's a very interesting look the original workbench you know 1.3 is the one that sticks out to me which is you know the white on blue 
is that actually the best contrast wise um contrast is something i'm really into because of again my time i've mentioned this before but messing about with the um web content um, accessibility guidelines and there's a tool that i used to show people i used to point people towards um that you can uh, there's a, a color contrast analyzer there used to be a downloadable version but the one i've been talking about with this week is actually on webaim.org um, there's a color, color contrast checker on there as well that you can just use from within the browser and the whole idea of that is you basically use the dropper to set your background color and your foreground color and you test the the contrast ratio against the accessibility standards so the standards um, a ratio of around 6.1 is a fail at AAA standard and a ratio of around four to one um, sorry six to one not 6.1 um and a ratio of four to one are these horse racing yes <laughs> these are horse racing <laughs> so four to one on four to one we have double a standard uh, that would be a good name for a horse <laughs> that'd be a great name for a horse double a standard i like it <laughs> anyway so for, for a ratio of four to one around four to one is a is basically a complete fail so i was using the the, the color checker against these versions of Workbench. My reason being, I wanted to see, how is this customized version of Workbench that they showed in Stranger Things, is it actually better than the original Workbench? Oh, okay. okay. So the original Workbench colors, white on blue, that is in fact a past, which surprised me. It's a pass of around 7.37 to 1. So it's not bad, but only just passes. I'll take those odds. Yep. Stranger Thing colors, so the green on black, that's a pass of between, so 7.88 to 1 to around 9.03 to 1. Now, the reason I've given that range is obviously I'm going by a screenshot from a TV show. So it really depends on where you click to, to you know, select your foreground and background colors. I was trying to be as honest as possible. So let's call it an 8. It's around an 8 to 1. So it's actually fairly close to the original colors for contrast. Um Workbench 3, so I don't know um, how much you remember about Workbench. Obviously, that's when they went grey. In fact, I think Workbench 2, they originally went grey, didn't they? But I was messing about with the Workbench 3 colours. So that's kind of a black on grey. That's actually a really good pass of 9.03 to 1. Mm-hmm. My preferred colours that I'm messing about with at the moment on my actual A500 and in emulation, so that's white on black. Well, funnily enough, that's as <laughs> the highest contrast you can get. So that's... um. 21 to 1 um, as a contrast ratio. So, yeah, there you go. It's actually not yeah, a... Odds on favourite, 21 to 1, white <laughs> on black. Now, it's interesting you raise this because I'm pretty sure some time ago I read... Um, it, must, it might have been in the one of these History of Commodore books or something like that. I'm sure I read that the original colour choices for Workbench were chosen because they were the most effective color choices on the worst possible monitor so they took the worst case scenario the worst television uh maybe even a monochrome you know black and white television that someone might have been plugging their amiga into and they found that it was the um it was like the blue and the white text on blue with orange wasn't it Mm. that combo gave the best results on on the cheapest crappiest monitor so um someone can correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure i read that's why it is so Interesting though those results because you would think the twenty one to one white on black would still be better even on on that monitor. I, I don't know. It, maybe it depends on the limitations of the of the of the screen itself. Um, mm-hmm. I, if you think about connecting, Amigas were predominantly connected by RF, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So if you think about um, RF, you, you don't you, you don't get black. If you get if you have black and RF, you get a kind of a a, a halo around it of of different colors so perhaps that's what it is well i think it depends what amiga you're talking about because i'm sure there would have been a lot more rf amiga 500 users than there would yeah, have true. been a thousand if you could afford an amiga 1000 you were probably chucking a monitor on top of it that's true that would be well, my you're using instinct. composite wouldn't you well you got rgb out you haven't you yeah, so you got RGB. yeah yeah, you got RGB. Yeah. So, so the the rich kids had monitors, um, but people like me <laughs> and, and me and I maybe Neil. Yeah, it was RF. it was into yeah. a TV. It was into a TV via uh, the RF. And the Amiga One Thousand was was not a cheap machine at all. So, if you yeah. were going to pony up the money for that, then perhaps you would almost certainly have, especially if you, for what it was. I mean, it was a, a amazing for multimedia. So it'd be a mm. it, it'd be a, a bit of a, a disaster to to couple it with a, a monitor that really didn't show it off. Yeah, I really like these color contrast analyzers, and I'll put the links to the two in the show notes um, for for Duncan. Um, but 
one of them it actually shows what the colors would look like to certain different degrees of color blindness and where that comes into play for everybody is exactly this scenario what if you're using a rubbish monitor or the colors aren't set right or you're using a monochrome display because funnily enough you get exactly the same kind of thing happen whereas if the contrast isn't great things actually disappear when you go monochrome rather than being visible unless you've got that contrast ratio so it's actually a really important um design aspect to, to keep in mind so yeah it's really cool um but anyway that's enough about customized version of workbench another huge feature all the way through stranger things and sort of integral to the storyline almost is you know role playing and specifically dungeons and dragons and dave i know you like your role playing so have you mm -hmm. spotted things in the franchise on that front do they mostly get that right yeah, they, they do. Um, I don't know about every monster or every game they mention in it, but it strikes me that they got the, the, the feeling of, of D&D buying on, at least for how it was back then, because I think Stranger Things started in the early 80s, maybe 1983 did it start, uh, and mm -hmm. presumably it's gone yeah. year by year since then. That seems to ring a bell. D&D mm. um, &D was very different back then. It, it, um, it, it was really quite homebrew in the, the early 80s. It was mostly homemade adventures and homemade monsters, and you maybe didn't have all the source books, and that's the feeling I get from Stranger Things. It's the it's that kind of um, free form D and D that you had back then. Uh, nothing like as official as it got by TSR and then Wizards of the Coast in the nineties. So. Um, I'm fairly sure, though, that someone who was perhaps in the late teens and played D&Ds in the, in the early 80s, um, clearly I'm much, much too young for that, um, <laughs> would be able to write a list of things that aren't quite right. But I don't think it matters. Uh, I think that's the whole appeal of the show. It's a little bit better than the reality, not in the Red Dwarf sense, but a bit uh, a better than the reality of our memories of it. It's, a, it's a, an enhanced version of it. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, what, I, what I love is uh, uh, what they've done with D&D. I don't know that much about D&D because I wasn't allowed to play it. And in the storyline, they've even picked up on that. There was a paranoia amongst certain people that D&D &D was something evil. It was going to corrupt your kids. It was going to lead them down a dark path. And that is in the show. Um, and I remember that being in the news and, and you know, perpetuating through certain circles so it's really interesting that they picked up on that um i mean yes okay going back to the computer they've got plenty wrong um at, no sorry actually that's not the right phrase they have used artistic license in much of the yeah, scene. Yeah, I think that's the better way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so you know, they're, they're they're talking about the internet to a degree. They're hacking HTML code, which is quite amusing to see that flashing up on an Amiga One Thousand. Uh, and they do kind of explain that way in the script in a cheeky way. They know it doesn't fit, um, and they they sort of shine a light on it almost. Um, trolling us. Trolling I think us. they are trolling us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's one item in a scene in a massive franchise about a period in the past we all love being transported back to. And and think about it, everything in every scene has to at least try and be period correct. So, you know, the carpet, the walls, the posters, um, the desks, the chairs, the cars, the cutlery, things in the kitchen, the kind of TVs and radios that are uh, maybe visible as the camera pans around, the phone plugged into the wall, the type of BMXs they're riding, the type of cars on the street, even in the background. Oh, so they, dragons. They, they plug the phone into the wall, Chris, do they? But they don't plug the tank mouse into the Amiga. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah all the pop culture references the list goes on um but i just think you know, this... maybe they did the kickstarter for the, for the wireless tank mouse maybe that's what they did <laughs> oh, maybe that's, that's what, what it, was. it was they had the prototype yes they did yeah and it connected to the internet wirelessly as well it's fantastic this machine could time travel uh but anyway you, you know what i'm getting you, you know there's a lot of work and effort goes into it and it's easy to make ourselves feel big by pointing out that it's one point workbench 1.3 a couple of years too early um but it's one tiny icon in an entire world that's been recreated from the ground up you know I, and i just absolutely love that yeah i think that's what dragged me into it you know you did mention earlier that i'm not so much into the horror films but just the aesthetic of the whole thing the you know from the first time you saw an early 80s bedroom on that show and the posters mm. and the you know coupled with the lovely lighting and again artistic licensing we didn't fill our bedrooms with rgb lighting back in the 80s there's lots of that going on but um you know it gets the feeling across um and and, and i really love it and 
I noticed this week, Stranger Things has just put Kate Bush into the top 10 here in the, in the music charts. There's a I whole new that. generation just discovered running up that hill um, and, and they put her into the top 10. And likewise, they're going to be discovering a whole load of other stuff that we don't notice. So retro gaming, retro toys, fashion, posters, memorabilia, all of that stuff. You know, they're going to be seeing it through that show. They're going to be looking it up and getting into it. And it, remember, it's so easy to do that now. Um if we watched a show back in the early 90s and thought, wow, that poster looks great, or I wish I had those shoes or whatever, we couldn't just go on the internet and look it up. You know, there had to be a huge campaign in magazines really pushing it, tied in with the program for us to get it. But, you know, um, there they go. Kate Bush had no intention to release, you know, re-release a single or an album. They can just go on Spotify and play it now and, and bang, it's in the top 10, which is really wonderful to see. Um yeah, I love it. Even though it's through rose-tinted glasses sometimes, <laughs> I do love the world of Stranger Things. Nice, yeah. They've just put the price of A1000s up then. That's all I'm getting from that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, every episode, I think, it just paints an amazing picture of life in the 80s. It sometimes paints it with a broad brushstroke that smudges the edges a little, I think is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. But I just want to say thank you to everybody involved in the making of Stranger Things. Seriously, you do a wonderful job. So submitted by um, show favourite Control Alt Reese, who um, isn't quite up there with Pajaco, uh, but he still submits <laughs> quite a lot to us. Um, he submitted uh, a story that um, uh, there has been some um, early Ultimas, yeah, shockwaves. Shock yeah, yeah, that's the Kotaku headline. <laughs> um, Wata graded extremely rare early Ultima turns out to be a forgery. So, um, on the 30th of May, um, on Twitter, Dominus of Exil sent a tweet that said, this used to be the centerpiece of my collection, rare and expensive old games. Now it turns out I've been scammed and sold forgeries by a well-known figure in the Ultimate and Retro Games community, along with many others. Dominus of Exile is a big Ultima fan. He's also known as Dominus Dragon in Ultima fandom. He's actually one of the people behind the Exalt project, which I know you played, Neil, which is the um, it's the, the the modern engine to play the data files from Ultima 7 and so on. Um, loads of people have seen it. It's great. Now, in a private Facebook group uh, with over 6,000 members called the Big Box Computer Game Collectors, admin Joel McCoy makes a thorough and detailed post. In it, he explains that someone in the group felt that had they had been sold a forgery and reached out to other people in the group. Now, they kept it quiet, so the admins of the group kept it quiet while they investigated, and they found out that beyond any doubt, they had all been sold forgeries by a guy, Enrico Ricciardi, uh, who is the well-known figure mentioned in Dominus's tweet, and he's also a former moderator of that group. Now, what are the actual games that have been forged? Well, it's Ultima. It's not Ultima 1, it's Ultima, because back then there wasn't an Ultima 2, so it's just Ultima. It was the re-release that was called Ultima 1. Uh, Akalabeth, Escape from Mount Drash, but also non-Ultima games like Temple of Apshai and an early Sierra game, Mystery House. Now, these games mostly predate the games industry. These are mostly museum pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have seen me hold up my copy of Ultima 1, but that's nothing like these games. These games are from another level from that. They're, they're way, way super rare games. They're games from before the games industry really existed. So most of them are games in bags. So Richard Garriott would make them, and I'm sure he'd talk to you about it, Neil, when you when mm-hmm. you interviewed him. Um, they make them up in a, in a bag, seal the bag, and you, that's how they were distributed. And they weren't kept. They were they weren't highly valued back then so there's not that many of them around um escape from mount drash for example which is sierra's ultima knockoff with his consent i believe um there's only believed to be about about around 15 copies of that in existence at all so it's all high high value stuff so these are not replicas neil these are these are fake intentional fakes not replicas being misused of fakes um so reading this story and the personal impact it must have on people has got me thinking hard about replicas. For me, the purpose of opening a box game, owning a box game is to experience the game in the best way possible. Um, I always say that for old box games like all the stuff I have behind me uh, and in front of me and around me, um, the experience starts 
when you touch the box, when you um, when you read the box, when you open it, when you read the manual, there's maybe a novella in there. Mm -hmm. um, but somewhere around 20 years ago, that stopped. And the experience then changed to being, once you installed the game, put the CD in, type the code in, and launch the game, that's when it started. So these old games there, there's much more to them than what modern games is. It's more about what's in the box, uh, the experience there. So I know you love your box games too, Neil. So now you're hearing about this, what are you thinking about replicas? Yeah, and um, hopefully while you've been talking about that, Duncan will have been have put up the pictures of what he described as the jewel in his crown, his collection, uh, and those who are watching on video would, would see. Um, can you just, I don't know if you've got that picture in front of you, Dave, can you just bring it up and describe to those on audio what, what's on the picture there? So the jewel in the crown in this guy's collection, his, his centerpiece, his ultimate big box games that he's now found out are all fake. Um, can you just describe that? Yeah, um, so the it, it's a it's a, an image of um, Ultima uh, in a a plastic bag that you use to put food in. Um, Ultima escaped from Mount Drash. Um, beyond adventure lies Akalabeth, the world of doom. Akalabeth is a really interesting one because, as you say, that was made originally on Richard Garrett's kitchen table. His mum made the artwork. It was photocopied, hand sort of cut, put in the Ziploc bags. Probably quite easy to fake, to be honest. Um, it, it depends to what degree these people have gone to to, to work out that they're fakes. You know, how have they dated it? Yeah, so it's the... Really interesting. You're right. In a in a in a way, it's easy to fake because there's there's no that there's nothing to say what these exactly have to look like that way. But they've picked up that some of them are fakes. Some of the ways they picked up the fakes, there's there's um, scanning artifacts. There's little little hazes you would get from where you you've scanned something. You would see clues that it's been done that way. Mm -hmm. The fakes aren't the fakes aren't perfect. Um, mm -hmm. When I've read through this. I'm fairly sure that if you set your mind to it and you really, really wanted to fake something, you could do it. Um, yeah. But yeah, the the, um, uh, the, the, the there's the, these things aren't. That's not the same as a manufactured game that's made in a factory. These are all, to some extent, handmade. Yeah. And it was gutting when I saw that picture because when I first saw that picture, before I'd read the caption or the story at all, it was just like, wow, those are my dream games. Those are the dream big box collectors games. And for someone to have parted with I'm, I'm sure a huge amount of money for them and then to find out they're all fake it, it must be absolutely gutting so my heart goes out to this guy uh, there are replicas and then there are as you described forgeries defrauding of innocent people in people buying these things in good faith it's, it's an absolutely appalling story and um, i hope they keep digging and i hope they manage to get to some kind of conclusion and there's you know some kind of consequences for the guy who's done this and he just doesn't disappear into the ether um doesn't go through a moon gate to the other side never to be seen um in terms of replicas there's nothing wrong with replicas where it's clear what they are replicas a huge amount of enjoyment as you've described can be had out of the next best thing to the original it's yeah. what the mega drive mini is to a degree for many people mm. that's the next best thing it's what a football shirt is when you've got Ronaldo on your back and you're running around the park, but you know, that's not Ronaldo's shirt. And you know, you're happy to pay 50 quid and not, you know, 5,000 pounds for that shirt. And it makes you feel good because you know what it is. Uh, but yeah, th this story seems to go deep, really deep. It's not an opportunist scam. It sounds like it's someone who's built up a reputation in the ultimate and the big box community. It sounds like they've manipulated people over a long period of time and indeed played each other off against one another. Um, sworn them to secrecy told them one's getting a favor and the other one shouldn't find out it's pure manipulation it sounds horrible um yeah have you got more details dave can you can you help us yeah. to make them more because you're obviously very confident you've named this guy in your opening paragraph so you're not worried about yeah. any kind of comeback on that there's enough evidence out there yes yeah. it, it, it's absolutely beyond question uh, beyond question these are fakes and all i can say is that the the, the people in, in this group say that the, the fakes have come from this guy um that's all i can say now i work in finance so i keep up to date with with how scams work and what the latest scams are and, and how people do it and almost all of the scams that we have are done through some level of social engineering time pressure 
or secrets. It's what you've described. And that's how this was done. Um, this was a, a really well-respected member of the community. And I should say it's not a community that I'm really in. I don't want to pass myself off as having more knowledge than I really do. I'm, I'm not in these circles. Now, he did it by telling people stories. For example, the copy of the game he had was a gift and it shouldn't be revealed that it's been sold on. It's it, Keep it quiet. Um, there are games that you can't buy at all. If certainly, You certainly can't buy them easily. These games don't come up on eBay. And if they do, it's probably a fake. Um, I've listened to a few podcasts talking about the number of uh, Akala Beths going around, that there's far more going around now than there ever were back in the day because there's so many fakes going around. And you can't, like you said, because it's a handmade game, a homemade game, you can't really prove it's a fake or not um, easily. Um, so you can't really buy these games. So this is this is someone saying, here's your opportunity to buy the game. Put time pressure on you buy it now. It's a secret. Here's your one-off chance. And then people will spend money. Perhaps they don't have or they shouldn't be spending on this uh, to buy these games because they feel um, the fear of missing out, the old FOMO that I'm a victim of quite often on eBay. Um, that's why I think they bought them. Um, I've seen screenshots of the guy here exposing fakes and scammers on auction sites. Yeah. So um, John and Brenda Romero visited the guy to, to see his big box, collect, big box collection when they were over in Italy. Um, so yeah, um, now the, the, the group believe they've identified at least 100,000 euros of sales. So that's a huge amount, huge yeah. amount. I mean, the, the stuff I've got here, perhaps the stuff I've got here is worth must be worth four figures but nothing like that mm. um huge amount of sales um and it does sound like a credible figure and that's only with the people in their uh, in their their spheres so presumably he'll have sold stuff to people who who aren't in those spheres who haven't been talking to him about the the the, the, the stuff they bought from him so that could be even higher um as to the quality of them the evidence provided shows that they're fakes some of the discs are even blank. So a blank disc, I mean, that's a, that's a big giveaway there. Uh, and you might think, well, that's that obvious, but people would have no reason to believe they're a fake. There's no reason to look. You wouldn't be getting the a, a magnifying glass out to look and see if you can see the evidence of where it's been scanned and reprinted. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would have been taken in too. I mean, it, it's... The nature of how this is done. This isn't people buying it from someone they don't know on eBay. This is this is people buying it from an expert uh, in, in the in the hobby. Um, so uh, the evidence they've got is compelling. These these definitely are fakes. It's sad, and it's the human cost in this that's really bad. Uh, as I said, people have spent large amounts of money, and perhaps money they shouldn't really have spent. I mean, if 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 there's something for your collection, you're offered and you're told yeah. this is the chance to get it. You're not going to get another chance. Mm. You're going to spend the money that you perhaps don't have, stick it on a credit card just to add to that collection because you think I'm, it's going to go up in price. I'm not going to get another chance. Yeah, something that pops out for me here, Dave, is, you know, of course, the way you've described, we cannot blame the victim for this. They've been taken in by, you know, somebody um, very elaborately, but also factor into that the grading of the game. So mm. where does that come into the story? So um, one of the games... Uh, has been uh, graded by, as far as I can determine, has been graded by uh, the VGA, the Video Games Authority, and then by WATA. And WATA are a topic this podcast discussed before, but but not by me. Um, Chris, what do you think about grading and WATA in general? Um, well, Dave, I think I'm kind of fortunate because I don't tend to buy at the high end of the market. But, I mean, this whole story, okay, it's only one game. Let, let's you know see it for what it is it's only one game that they've allegedly graded from this you know um game that they graded was it an ultima it's a box copy of ultima yeah it was the ultima okay yeah. yeah so but it does bring into question their grading i guess um and i'm just going to say that loosely because it's not an area I'm, a, I'm an expert in but you would want to think that they are equipped to spot a fake if there's any credibility in their grading um i'm a gamer i'm i'm not a collector so i don't have any personal interest in in water or grading as a thing um 
I have an unused game for the Jag. The one extra game I bought for my Jag is, in fact, unused. It's in its original bag inside the box. Everything in the box looks untouched, and there's still the sticky tape sealing that bag. It will get opened. I'm going to play it. Um, that's its purpose, is to be played. So I'm really not into yeah, this collecting these, you know, these high-priced items for a shelf. And that's not to bring down people that are, because there's it's a different hobby. Uh, in my mind it's a different side to the to the hobby um but i do find this entire story deeply troubling um more so that it was a moderator on this group um i actually i find that quite upsetting um and you know even at the low end it's something i've been paranoid about when i started getting into, into collecting is this an original copy of the game i'm buying um have they even you know the more i um learned about restoration methods is this the original platter if they have replaced the platter inside the disc that's not a problem for me but have they replaced it with a double density instead of an h high density those kind of things but let's face it i'm gambling with maybe 10 pounds maybe 30 pounds i'm not gambling with hundreds and hundreds of pounds so i really don't mind losing that money and do you know what if i don't know then i don't care uh it's a completely different ball game what you're talking about here so i think um i think this whole thing is possibly in the hands of the law now um or is is that right i i think that's implied but they have they've been they've been quite they've been quite careful not to say very much on it for mm. I think wise reasons they've not said too much on it um now as for the the water thing the whole point of them is so that you've got certainty that what you've got is real um if I was to for some reason have enough money to buy a copy of a, a Calabeth or um something like that then I would want to be either certain that it was a replica and clearly marked as a replica because I want if I wanted to play that game, I'd be okay to use a replica. But especially after hearing all this stuff, I would want it to be not just marked as a replica, but so that no one could mistake it for the real thing. But if it was real, I would want to know it was real. I'd want to want proof it was real. And um, and sadly, the guy involved here would be one of the people you would ask if it's real. Um, so I did contact Wata and I asked for them their comments on it. Um, and because of the way that this podcast works, there was time because the story came out just after we recorded last week. So I asked them and they were kind enough to give me a timely response. I was promised contact by Dennis Kahn, who's the president, but instead I was contacted by a media strategist from a PR agency called Golden, who provided a statement and it was to be attributed to an unnamed spokesman, spokesperson at Wata. We take claims around our authentication standards seriously and are looking into this matter about one game that was graded several years ago. We are confident in our current authentication process and have reached out to the owner of the game so that we can receive and reevaluate it given newly surfaced information. <laughs> we are prepared to remedy the situation with the owner if needed. Now, I can't really fault that. What they're I saying can. is that, yeah, we made a mistake in the past <laughs> and we're going to sort it and we're not going to do that now. And they're going to, we're prepared to remedy the situation with the owner if needed. Hang, so on, it, hang on, hang on, hang on. They're saying we're prepared to re- receive it and reevaluate the game that we now know is a fake so we can tell you it's a fake. That doesn't Come work. On. Well, it doesn't work. They, they want, well, they, I'm guessing they want to look at it and say, okay, we've got no way out of this. Uh, it's a fake. Um, but, mm. From what it sounds like there, I mean, how can they? How could they have told it was a real one? Mm. The, the only way they could have told it a real one would, would would be to compare it against something that's known to be a real one, and that that's an expensive process, and they haven't bothered doing that. There is another um, way. I mean, surely they would have charged a lot of money for this process. Yes. I, I don't know how, how the, the payment system works with water, but I would imagine, you know, if you're having um a very expensive diamond evaluated by a specialist you'd pay more than if it was just you know something from elizabeth duke so uh, given the amount of money that's probably changing hands for this assessment perhaps they could have tried to get hold of richard garriott who is responsive and quite well that, 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 yeah that 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 that's the the level of of what you need to do to do yeah. this you need you need to you need to do something like that um but what have they actually done have they just looked online and gone yeah it looks like it to me it's about right <laughs> Yeah. Open the box, giving it a sniff. Yeah, that smells really? old. 
Doesn't smell good at all. That's fine. Um, now, there have the, the, the big box collectors have issued some statements and they've issued which uh, I'll ask our, our producer Duncan to, uh, to link it here a guide on what to do to try and avoid uh, picking up something that you don't think is real or you, your concern may not be real. And this story tells you to always be to, to be aware of it because it may come from a source you trust. Um, and they're keeping a dignified silence on what happens next, which I think is very wise, rather than going off on things that are half-cocked, especially if it goes to legal, legal things. The less they say in public about it, presumably the better. Mm -hmm. um, but my, my heartfelt sympathy to anyone affected, I, I'm a minor collector, the stuff I have, there's a few valuable things there, but not very many. Um, I mean, most of the stuff is is a five or a 10 or 20 quid, 30 quid, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not, it's not worth someone's effort to fake it. Yeah, um, it's another example, isn't it, of, of what a, um, that there are plenty of examples stacking up of them not quite getting it right or, you know, just overvaluing genuine items as well. Um, it's almost like because none of these things are one-offs. I know there are a limited number of these things available, some of these games now, but it's yeah. not like you're assessing something from Egyptian periods that you only have one example of. There are others. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we need a central archive of games, like an official central archive of games where things can be compared and, and we know they're the authentic ones. Perhaps Garriott himself has loaned his collection and you know, you've got them all there. And then that would give me confidence in a grading service like that if they could go and compare it. But you just get the impression these things are going, passing over someone's desk. Like you say, they're doing a quick Google search. I'd love to know their processes to, to know exactly how they can be an authority because I don't have confidence in them as no. the authority for games grading. And I don't know how they would establish that. Yeah. How is it that someone like Wata didn't spot that this is a fake, whereas the recipient of the game has picked up that it's a fake and then been able to do so, further digging to establish the fact that there are other fakes out there. Um, yeah, so the, 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 yeah. there's loads of, the, there's support that seems to be loads of fakes out there. Hmm. Um, a lot of them, but nobody spotted it because nobody looked, but hmm. that's Wata's job to look. That's what that's you pay what them saying. to do. Yeah, you pay them yeah. to, to do, I guess to do the two things. One is to, to make sure that this is the real thing by looking at what a real thing is. But on the other side of that, they should be looking to see what markers do we have to show that this is a reproduction, yeah. to show that someone has printed off a, a, a JPEG, uh, to show that someone, a JPEG, a JPEG, uh, <laughs> so that, show that someone has um, a GIF or a GIF, a yeah. ping or a ping. Um, to show that someone has gone through the steps to, to reproduce this, do you see when you scan something that's black and white uh, on, on a photocopier, you might see a little bit of red come yeah. in there, uh, a little bit around the around the, the characters and so on. Have the, have they they sat down and looked for that? Because if you look at it, at the evidence that that's been provided, even if you've never seen a copy of Mount Drash or you've never seen a copy of Ultima Four, there are things in this that you could show. Well, hang on a minute, this this isn't quite right. Yeah. So I guess the question I'm raising is, you know, are, are water, is water made up of people that are into games or is it made up of people that are, are qualified in forensic investigation for this kind of work? Do you know what I mean? Because it's two different things. So if this is just a group of people that are into games and think they can spot, oh, yeah, this is a good copy of a game. This is, this is a fantastic mint looking um, Super Mario for the NES. Well, that's completely different to actually looking at paperwork at cardboard at the quality of cardboard is it the right print material is it the right font is uh, like you say are there evidence that this is scanned and reprinted that's a completely different skill set um so i assume uh, I, I haven't looked at water's website but are there criteria of the staff that they employ and their areas of expertise um if you're going to be throwing big money at them maybe that's the kind of thing to look into i don't know i think we should yeah. put out an appeal to anyone listening who has perhaps worked at or is mm. working at water you can keep your anonymity if you want to tell us the stories from the inside because if we yeah. don't hear from you chris we're going to have to make you our man on the inside we're going to have to infiltrate <laughs> we'll get you in there <laughs> oh dear <laughs> yeah so it's um have a look at the 
the documents I'll ask uh, to Duncan to look at, and you can see what the you can see what the evidence is. They've been really, really thorough and really careful about explaining it, so that if you do sit down and take the time to look at it, you'll understand that it's beyond any question that these, these are these are not real. And also, they'll give you some tips on how to avoid it happening to yourself. On now to our community question of the week, and last week we asked you the question: We want to know in terms of productivity software. Which product did you find it the hardest to let go of? Any platform, any genre of software, whether spreadsheet, art package, or music maker. Did you cling on to it till the end? Fingernails deeply dug into that productivity package. And do you still cling on to them now? Tell us your stories. We'll go into our first answer, which comes from Piston Retro. Yeah. Pitstone Retro. Yeah. Pitstone. Sorry, Pitstone. I've completely misread that. It's not Piston. It's Pitstone Retro. It's Sorry Freudian. It's fine. Here we go. So um, they say Paint Shop Pro on the PC. I started using the shareware version of PSP in the mid 90s after finding it on a cover disc. It was easy to use, but had some advanced features at the time, like the clone brush. It was much more useful than Microsoft's paintbrush, but easier to use than Photoshop. I used it up to version 7. After that, they changed the interface, so I stuck at 7. Later, Corel came along and messed it up some more. I would still use it today, but it has a memory leak on modern operating systems, so only get 10 minutes of use before it crashes. That's unfortunate. But yeah, I do remember that period where PaintShop Pro became, it pretty much became the de facto paint package for, for most of us, um, certainly on the PC platform because Adobe had a bit more dominance over on the Macintosh. But PaintShop Pro probably first discovered it myself on a cover disc as well. Did you guys use it? Never used What's it. The, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I visited the cave recently and Stu Cambridge gave us the talk on what he used. Is this not the kind of thing that he was talking about where he used ones that we hadn't heard of that were alternatives that continued on the, a different legacy? Uh, well, he's, a, he's a Linux guy, so he was using open source paint packages and, mm. and making a donation to them. Um I don't know if any of them had their heritage back to this. PaintShop Pro was a paid-for product, but there was a, mm. a shareware version mm. available for it. I don't know. There may be some heritage in it that goes through to modern um, things. Sounds like, you know, Cor Coral bought them, as um, mm. Pitstone Retro describes. Had to double-check the name there again. <laughs> so, so did it become Coral Draw? Because I remember Coral Draw. Well, Coral Draw existed alongside it, I think, and oh, that okay. was um, a vector package, wasn't it? Oh, okay. Right. That's the difference, right? Yeah. yeah. Dave's up and he's picking something off the shelf. So what's he going to show us? A copy of Draw. The only paint packages you need. I can't make out what they are. Oh, no. Hyperdraw. Hyperpaint and Hyperdraw. Oh. Are they Moving on. on. That's not true. Other paint packages <laughs> exist. <laughs> Chris, you, do you want to read the next one out? Yeah, no worries. This is from... I think, hang on I've lost my place. Sorry. It's from ProTech 438 the is the yeah, next. ProTech 438. So for me, Deluxe Paint 2, oh, nice. Uh, in, enhanced is the productivity software that probably has held uh, resistance on my Residence. hard drive for Residence. the longest. Residence. Residence. Sorry. Put your <laughs> hand up when you get to a big Sorry. Word. I did. Look, it was a day off here, right? It was a day off here. So Are maybe I here? had been on the wine <laughs> before we recorded <laughs> as well. So I've just got to the end of that. And so we'll, we shall press on. We're nearly at the end. Um, yeah. So it's held residence on my hard drive for the longest, <laughs> seeing various versions of DOS and Windows to come and go. Um, starting from the early 90s, I believe it. I had it installed well into the 2000s. Wow although uh, I didn't actively use it. The user interface in DP2 was extremely intuitive compared to, for example, Photoshop or GIMP. Um, it wasn't until 2016 when I found a spiritual success for, uh, successor to Deluxe Paint, the Paint Tool SAI. Its user interface is very similar to DPaint whilst adding new features to it. It's also very lightweight compared to Photoshop or Clip Studio, even though I have also Clip Studio which is extremely feature rich i find myself returning to sai just due to its intuitiveness it would be fun to give deluxe paint yet another go uh, and see it uh, um see if it's possible to use a pen display with it that would be interesting actually hmm, deep paint for me is an amiga title uh, 100% yeah. but when you when you get into pc deluxe paint feels like ms paint i'm sorry to say and photoshop is infinitely better so yeah, from a nostalgia point of view, I'm with you there, mate. But from a feature-rich point of view, 
Well, I disagree. But why? <laughs> but why D Paint Two? Um, people usually hold yeah. up D Paint Three as the, the mm. perfect one, and D Paint Four goes into the AGA features a bit more and is a bit slow on a OCS ECS machine. So mm. D Paint Three is usually held up. So interesting. Talk about D Paint Two, and also on the PC. So he was using that um, yeah. on a PC, not not your typical Amiga D Paint Three user. So yeah, interesting. And just going back to what Dave raised about Stu Cambridge. One of the big things that Stu raised about D-Paint and moving on to other paint packages is what attracted him to the other paint packages were those that carried on using the keyboard shortcuts that first appeared in, in D-Paint 3. So he could carry on um, just with one hand on the keyboard. But I have to say that's exactly how I learned to use Photoshop and all of the Adobe packages. You've always got one hand on the left side of the keyboard and one hand on the mouse, and you're yeah. always flicking between all of those shortcuts. But um, Yeah. Our final uh, answer this week is from Fiskit, um, who I've seen that name before, so he must have. Was he not on last week's Yes, answers? he was. Uh, I'm still using Personal Paint, uh, which he says is from an Amiga format CD, on the Amiga to make graphics for my game projects. Not found anything better yet. Mm. I don't know if that means if he's not found anything better because he's using Amiga and he has to use Amiga software, or whether <laughs> it means he's not found anything better in the whole the whole realm of, of, of or even packages, modern computers. Yeah. Mm. Well, that brings us full circle all the way back to what we opened the show with, which was 10-Minute yeah. Amiga's retro uh, podcast, yeah. mm. which is the Amiga paint competition. So go and check the links in the show notes. Yeah, I, I would suggest it's a, it's a good thing to do because trying try to do a project now in Photoshop, I mean, the, the sky's the limit. But if you if you do something on one of these old Amiga things, at least you, you, you've got a limited thing. You, you, you can, the, the, you don't, you don't then have to do a massive project. You can do something nice and simple. And I haven't watched uh, the entries into, I mean, art isn't really my thing, but if you haven't watched the entries into um, th th this competition before, it's amazing what people can do. And it's not, it's, you're not talking about putting days into this, a few hours and you can do yeah. something. Hmm. So on now to this week's question of the week, community question of the week, which you can participate in at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can also submit stories for us to consider and upvote other stories for us to consider for inclusion in the show. And this week's question of the week is Chris. So thank you, Neil. Yes, the question of the week, because of course we have one ready to go, um, is basically um, what show or, you know, movie or TV series, whatever, transports you back to the 80s and 90s in a really uh, good way you know it could be could be to do with computers could be to do with the toys that they show the fashions that they have what really takes you back to a place that you are uh, and a time that you have fond memories of and how does it do it just let us know in the subreddit or something like as that. always thank you very much to everyone for listening we were described last week i think it was on twitter by someone as uh like the modern equivalent of a saturday morning kids tv show so <laughs> i like that, that. you're your mate yeah. i like that i like that so uh, hopefully you're enjoying your breakfast as you listen to us today and uh, do participate in the subreddit reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro and we'll see you next time thank you for listening bye bye goodbye everybody bye he's waving <laughs> This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.